So here we go, continuing this series through Lent. Lent, that time that leads up to Easter, that time when, when we remember all that we have in need of our own for Jesus to come and to save us and to rescue us. We have been through this series of Lent going through the book of Hebrews. So if you've been following along, there was a bookmark we put out several weeks ago that broke the entire book of Hebrews down into daily readings. And if you've been following with that, we are working our way through that. And on Sundays, I've been highlighting a few pieces here and there. The last two weeks, this is what we've gone through. We've we've highlighted in chapter 1, how the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being fully divine, one of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is eternal God. In chapter 2, we highlighted how Jesus is also fully human, 100% one of us through the incarnation that Jesus came and lived among us. So we highlighted all those things with the question of who exactly is Jesus? Now today we start moving in a new direction. Not so much about who is Jesus, but now the question becomes, and what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Now, I know we could answer that question maybe by going to the Gospels and Picking out all the events. Well, of course, we see in the Bible what Jesus does, right? I mean, he heals people. He tells stories with these parables. He gives teaching. He he provides these other miracles and signs and wonders. We see in the Gospels what Jesus does, that he gave himself to be betrayed and sacrificed and crucified and that he rose again. All of those things are answers in the Gospels that we see to, well, this is what Jesus does. Hebrews, though, takes a little different spin on that in describing for us what Jesus does. So today I'm going to read a passage that comes from chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and it's uh, in your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen here. And then we'll start talking about how the author of Hebrews describes for us what Jesus does. All right? Hebrews 4, I'm beginning at verse 14, says this. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, 
He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be, priest, to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. What Jesus does. All right, there, there's different ways to answer this question, and, and I'm going to start by putting, well, a piece of doctrine up here, okay? This comes from the Heidelberg Catechism because, as I've mentioned, the Gospels talk about what Jesus does in ways that give us the activities. But what Hebrews is after here is what talking about what Jesus does, not in activities, but in categories, okay? So we're looking at categories of Jesus' activity. So follow me along with this. Stay with me. This will make sense as we go through it. This is from question 31 of the Catechism. It asks this. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And here's what the answer is, and I've highlighted and underlined a few things in here to help note that. Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be first our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Second, our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. And third, and our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom that he has won for us. Three things, prophet, priest, and king. This comes from our doctrine, the Heidelberg Catechism, but that also is a way for us to maybe get all right, a, a framework, a framework to begin thinking about what Jesus does. Now, I, I call that out because the book of Hebrews in particular focuses on just one of those, all right? And, and that's clear in the passage that I read here today. He's talking about a priest, that Hebrews, in particular, talks about what it means for Jesus to be a priest. Now, maybe that needs a little explanation, because in today's world, maybe when you think of priests, maybe, maybe you think of other churches, right? And yeah, th- this is a church where we in our structure don't have priests. We have pastors and elders and deacons. So what is all this talk about priests. I mean, because there are other churches, Roman Catholic or Anglican or Episcopal or Eastern Orthodox. There there are churches that still use that language of, of priests. So why are we pulling that in? Why did we get rid of that? How does that go? Well, we are, we are here signaling something that really leaks back to the Old Testament. When we link back to the Old Testament where they had priests that were appointed to serve among the people of Israel, that's the connection that Hebrews is looking to make here. Those are the kind of priests that we ought to be thinking about and examining in this context of what that happens. Now, stay with me on this. Here's here's how this goes with those three categories. Prophet, priest, king. All of those things that Jesus does fulfills something from the Old Testament. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets were the ones who represented God to the people, right? The prophets spoke on behalf of God a message to the people. Jesus fulfills that role in speaking the message of God to the people. 
And the last one, the king. The kings in Old Testament Israel were meant to rule the people on behalf of God. Again, on behalf of God, the ultimate ruler, the kings were set on his behalf, God's behalf, to rule the people. Priest goes the other way. Priests were the ones who represented the people on behalf of the people to God. See how that goes, how it swings that way. So the prophets and the kings were meant to represent God to the people. The priests and what the priests do represent the people to God. Hebrews is focusing on that one in particular. What it means that Jesus, in the work that he did and everything that he accomplished, how Jesus, through that, represents the people to God the Father. All right? That's what we're unpacking in this. All right. Now, today this might feel a little bit more like a Bible study because there's some features in this passage that help make that clear that might need a little explanation. So I gave you in your order of worship there, there's an outline. It's on the screen here. And we're going to see how this plays out with a description of Jesus as the priest and what that means for us and our takeaway. Okay? So a little bit of a tighter focus on a little Bible study here today to see how this goes. Now, it begins with the, the description of what a priest is and what a priest does in that way. And, and I put this in an outline where maybe you've seen me do this before because this is a structure you find all over the place in the Bible. The outlines in the Bible have this mirror kind of quality, right? They, they go A, B, and C, or one, two, and three, and then it sort of turns and flips and works its way back to the beginning. That's what we see here, right? So, verse 1, talking about the commitment of the priests. Where verse 1, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That the priest has a task, right? The, t- the priest is, is appointed work to do is given a commitment of what it is that they are to accomplish. This task that they're given is to be a representative for the people on their behalf before God. That the people, at least in Old Testament Israel, the people themselves did not have direct access to God. They could not do that. So the priests were those go-between, those middle people, those mediators who on their behalf would do the things that God would require in order for the people to be in his presence, to make atonement for their sins, their brokenness, their shortcomings, for their failures. The priests would do that. That was their commitment that they had, to do that on their behalf. Then, in verses 2 and 3, it talks about the compassion of the priest. Note how that takes place there, right? It says this, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. That the priest is someone who knows what they go through, because he's one of them. 
And in the customs of Old Testament Israel, if you find out that goes there, there were all of these purity laws that the priest had to do first on behalf of themselves so that they could be pure before God before they could do all that was necessary to bring the needs and the sins of the people before God. So a priest had compassion because he knew and understood his own sin and his own shortcoming as he represented the people there, right? And then, the last thing in there in verse 4, the calling of the priest, what it means for a priest to be called. Verse 4 says, No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, as it plays out through the end there, in verses 5 through 9, this whole thing goes backwards. So now it's talking about Jesus, but everything works backwards towards the beginning there. That just as the priest is someone who who has a calling, so Jesus received a calling. Just as the priest is someone who's compassionate, so Jesus is compassionate. Just as the priest was someone who had commitment, work to do, so Jesus had commitment, was assigned work to do, to accomplish. Let me say just a little bit more about each one of these things. Right? The, the outside ones first, the commitment. That the priest takes on this role to be a representative of the people on their behalf before God. Jesus comes and does that on the behalf of the people. That Jesus, becoming fully human, takes on that task. That task to represent the people in ways that the people themselves never could the ways that we never could, that he himself became that sacrifice to make atonement, right? That commitment that Jesus came to be one of us, that Jesus walked and lived on this earth for the purpose of going to the cross, of making atonement, of becoming that sacrifice on our behalf. That was the commitment Jesus made to be that mediator, to go in our place before God, to represent us before God in ways we never could. Then, the middle ones, compassion. That Jesus takes on the same compassion that the priest does. That the priest not only comes before God on behalf of the people, but also as one of the people, right? Not just on their behalf, but as one of them, knowing what they go through. Jesus fulfills this as well by becoming one of us, by having that compassion, a compassion that pleads before the Father on behalf of the people he loves so much. Maybe you've heard me tell before that, I mean, when I was in seminary, uh, living in Kalamazoo, my part-time job at that time was I, I was hospital chaplain at Bronson Hospital. So I would spend days going room after room and visiting with patients there and giving my best to be compassionate towards the needs that were presented before me. Then, many years later, in 2015, I got sick. And I needed tests and procedures and chemo, and radiation. I needed to be the one who had to wait for test results, and being told what was next. I was the one who had 
surgeries and hospital stays and laying in the bed and things became a little different. Sure, I did my best back in those days when I was a chaplain to to be compassionate to the needs of the person laying in the bed, but I didn't really know what that was like myself until I experienced it. There's something a little different then, right? Something a little different when I can say, yep, I've been there. I know something about that too. I think every one of us knows that in some way. Every one of us knows that in some way because we've all had something come along where a particular struggle of some kind and it just seems like there may be a few other people who all of a sudden just sort of come out of the woodwork and yeah, I know that struggle too, right? They relate. There's a compassion there that knows what that struggle feels like, whatever that situation may be. Jesus came to be one of us, not only to be before the Father on our behalf, but to be before the Father as one of us. Compassion because he knows. He knows. And then that thing right in the middle there, the calling. The calling of the priest that all right, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't kind of a uh, corporate takeover where they would try to appoint themselves or anything like that. But the priests were called and appointed, right? The priests were given that duty, that job to do. And Jesus was as well. So in in the heavenly trinity, however that works, right? It's a little beyond our imagination. But in the heavenly trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is the heavenly Father who appoints the Son to say, here is the task And it is then the Son, Jesus, who receives that appointment, that calling. Now, this is important. It's important because God knows. God knows that wherever salvation comes from, right? Wherever salvation comes for all the people who come to him in faith, all the people he's called, wherever that salvation comes from, well, that is going to be a source of glory and honor and praise and worship. And God does that in such a way where, you know, it, it, he's not snatching all the glory for himself. Right? He, he's not trying to hog all the honor on his own behalf, but the Father says, I'm going to give this honor. I'm going to give this glory to you, the Son. The Son then receives it. He doesn't take the honor. He receives it. He doesn't grab on to the glory. He receives the glory given to him. That it's a calling that way. A calling. So those things we see about what a priest does and how Jesus fulfills that in some way. All right, now now let me get nitpicky about a few things that maybe in this passage are are a little bit of a head-scratcher, right? Of, all right, you read that, and and I'm not quite sure what that's after and what you're talking about there. One of those, all right, twice in this passage, there's mention of this thing called the order of Melchizedek. What in the world is the order of Melchizedek? And how is Jesus connected to that? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to punt that one, right? Um, We'll talk about that next week, because... While I could answer that right now, 
For those of you who are reading along with our reading track, you're going to notice in this week's reading that there's a whole chapter coming, chapter 7, just about Melchizedek. So next week, Sunday, I'm going to talk about Melchizedek, who that guy is and what it means to be in the order of Melchizedek and how that connects to Jesus. We're going to set that one to the side and come back to it next week, right? The other thing in this that's a little bit confusing comes in verses 8 and 9, where it talks about Jesus having to learn obedience and being made perfect, right? That that there are times in, in this passage where maybe some people would say to me, all right, this is a little bit confusing, how did Jesus have to learn obedience? I mean, wasn't, was he disobedient at some point? Did he not know what obedience was? And he had to be made perfect, so was he imperfect before? How does that work that way? All right, a, a little bit of that helps explain this, where it says those words in verses 8 and 9. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. A couple of Greek words that maybe help bring this into perspective with some clarity, all right? The first one is the Greek word manthano. Manthano, uh, translated into English in your Bibles as learn, to learn, but, but it's a Greek word that means learn not in the sense of some cognitive information, but experience. In fact, maybe that's a better English word to put in that place that Jesus experienced obedience, right? That Jesus came to live that experience of perfect obedience that, you know what, you and I can't do and never could. That Jesus, all right, he didn't have to learn as in figure it out, but he came to experience that perfect obedience that you and I cannot do. And he did that on our behalf. Another Greek word that shows up here is teleos. It's the word that is translated into our English Bibles as perfect. And teleos does not mean perfect as in without flaw, right, as the opposite of imperfect, but it's teleos has the the sense more of being complete, right? So something that is sort of left undone or somehow still incomplete when it's brought to completion, when it's finished, when it's brought to its final ending, that's teleos, right? To be made perfect in that sense of being brought to completion. That's what Jesus does. Because as we're going to see in coming chapters, the role of the priest in the Old Testament was something that just had to keep going and going and going, right? They, they just cycled through this pattern of sacrifices again and again and again, but it was never complete. It never got you all the way there. You always had to keep going back to it. Jesus, though, completes what is needed for the atonement of the people. So those few things to bring some clarity to what the priest does and how Jesus then fulfills that role and does that on our behalf. Now, so what? Yeah, I've spent some time here kind of nitpicky through the priest and what the priest does and Jesus and how Jesus fits. Big deal. Uh, What's the takeaway that we walk out of here with today, right? What what difference does this make? Here's where I want to flip back to those last verses of chapter 4 that led into us. And there's two things there, two things that both begin with the words, let us, okay? 
let us. Two things that are given as activities. First of all, let us hold firmly to faith. Hold firmly to faith. You know, I know that we use the term faith in a, in a big umbrella way. Sometimes we talk about faith and we mean it like it's this big catch-all for, you know, everything in the Christian religion that we believe. You know, that's a part of the faith. Hold firmly to that. I think Hebrews is after something particular here, though, right? Let's not take it outside the context of this passage. That the author of Hebrews here is in particular focusing on that priestly role of Jesus. Hold on to that. Hold on to the way that Jesus has become the atonement before the Father that we could never do. Hold on to that. Now, think the Old Testament here in context. Think of the people of the Old Testament who, this is different. This is a switch. Because their whole lives, the atonement came from these other priests, the Levite people who had to do these things over and over and over again. And now you're telling me, no, we're holding on to something different. I don't have to hold on to anymore those priests who do the sacrifices over and over again. Now I hold on to the one sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, That's not us, is it? I mean, we don't live in a world where we depend on priests to do sacrifices over and over again for us. So maybe that's an application that goes right past. But think if we turn that just a little bit. All right, yeah, we don't depend on priests to do sacrifices over and over again so that we can be right with God. What do we depend on? Hmm? And for those of us that are American, we're pretty fiercely independent people, aren't we? We're kind of pull up your bootstraps and figure it out and do it yourself. Rise above and make your own way. Prove that you're worthy. Put in the work and the time and the effort and rise to the top. We are people who, yeah, we don't depend on priests to do things over and over again to make us right with God. We are people who are drawn in by a culture that tells us relentlessly, you prove it yourself. You prove that you're okay, that you're worthy. And I think that sort of bleeds its way into our thinking about faith here too, that we get sidetracked sometime thinking, I have to prove to God that I'm worthy. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 don't hold on to that. Don't hold on to any sense of you thinking you have to prove yourself how good you are to God. Don't hold on to that. Hold firmly onto Jesus who has done that for you. You are worthy before God, not because of anything you have to prove, but because Jesus has done that already for you. Hold on to that. And then, approach God with confidence. Confidence, right? That we don't have to be timid about that. That we don't live anymore in a world where we are so far separated from God that we could never get to God. But Jesus, Jesus the priest who represents us, who goes for us, who's made atonement on our behalf, Jesus goes before God. And we are invited to approach God then with confidence 
because of that. No longer does our sinful brokenness drive us farther away from God, but because of Jesus, we have confidence to draw near to God. That we are not people anymore who are forsaken and turned away. We're people who are forgiven. We're not people anymore who are condemned. But now we're people that God accepts. I'm going to invite the band to come forward because our closing prayer today is going to come to us as a song, right? That we're going to sing this closing prayer. That we approach God with confidence. That we are people who are forgiven, not forsaken. That we are people who are accepted, not condemned. So we come before God and we pray that together.